Well, we're going to turn our hearts now this morning to our series in the book of First Peter. We're, we're quickly coming to the end of Peter's letter. Uh, we only have uh, two, three more weeks, I think, in this uh, teaching series. And uh, we're going to continue on this morning, moving into chapter 4. I want to thank Pastor Stephen for filling in for me this past week. I was down in Dallas, Texas, speaking at a missions conference there and had a great time. But, of course, I always miss my home church when I'm away. But uh, thank Pastor Stephen for covering uh, so well for me in my absence. Let's uh, have a quick word of prayer and ask God's blessing as we look to the Scriptures again this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. And uh, what a joy it is to be together as the family of God and to sing your praises, Lord. We're, uh, we're grateful, God, for the many ministries in our church. And today, especially as we think of Stephen ministry and just the, the impact that that's had on so many people's lives. We thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that you would continue to raise up men and women, to serve in this vital area of ministry, to continue to be a a source of hope and encouragement to people in their times of need. And so, uh, Lord, we just commit that uh, that ministry to you, and we commit those men and women right now who are even uh, in the early stages of thinking about that possibility. And, uh, Lord, we pray that you would raise up another generation of great men and women to serve in Stephen ministry. And now, Lord, as we uh, open up 1 Peter once again, we just pray that your your spirit would illuminate these truths for us today, that you would remind us of the calling that you've given us as your people, as your disciples, and uh, remind us today again, Lord, what it means to follow you. And I pray that you would help me as I communicate. Let me do so with clarity and effectiveness. And uh, Lord, all of us here today, I pray for those of us present, for those of us watching online, that you would open our hearts to, to the message that you would have for us, Challenge us where we need that challenging. Encourage us where we need encouraging. And uh, may we approach your word with a spirit of humility and openness today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, I want you to imagine you've just started your morning. You've dropped the kids off at school. You're heading to work. You're making your way to work on what appears to be another average ordinary day. And all of a sudden, your cell phone starts beeping like crazy the warning alert system on your phone comes up and says, take immediate shelter, there is an incoming ballistic missile. Well, friends, this was the reality for over a million people in the state of Hawaii just a couple years ago. On January 13, 2018, at 8.07 in the morning, over a million people in the state of Hawaii got an alert on their phone saying to take immediate shelter, there was an incoming ballistic missile. Now you may recall three years ago, this was in the height of Kim Jong-un of North Korea making threats against the west coast of the United States, threatening to send a nuclear missile over to America. And so can you imagine being a resident in Hawaii and all of a sudden your official warning alert? I mean, these only go off, you know, like amber alerts and when ballistic missiles are coming, right? And a million people in Hawaii received these alerts. Accounts of that day said that people started pulling over on the sides of the highway, frantically running, looking for places to hide, calling family members, warning one another. Video of that day shows schools, kids, high school, college students running through the campuses looking for shelter. I mean, it was a terrifying experience, and it lasted for 38 minutes until it was discovered that somebody in charge of the state's warning system pushed the wrong button by accident. 
Can you imagine being that guy? (laughs) But friends, think about that. 38 minutes go by and you think death is imminent. The end is coming. Seek shelter. A ballistic missile, probably nuclear equipped, is on its way. You know, if you had that time, what would you do with it? If you knew the end was approaching. If you knew the, the end of your life was, was imminent. How, how would you use that time? What would you do with it? It's an interesting question to think about. And it's a question that our passage today in First Peter prompts us to reflect upon. You see, in our passage today, the Apostle Peter is going to remind us that our time in this world is short. And the end is very near. Peter reminds us today that, that judgment is coming. And with that being the case, the Apostle Peter in our passage this morning wants us to think about what it means for us to live our lives with whatever time we have left fully committed to Jesus Christ for the sake of one another, for a world that desperately needs to know Jesus, and ultimately for the glory of God. What would it look like, friends, for us to live like this? Well, what would it look like for us as a church to live wholly committed to the will of God with whatever remaining time he gives us in this world? These are the questions that Peter's going to ask us to reflect on this morning. And, and really what Peter's going to highlight for us is, is, is really the essence of Christian discipleship. He's going to ask us to focus this morning on, on the question, what does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus in this world? What does that look like? And again, how can we do that faithfully with whatever time we have left in this world? It's really interesting. This week I was looking at the topic of discipleship online, and I went to Amazon.com. If you go to Amazon.com and type in discipleship, you'll discover that you can purchase over 10,000 books on the topic of discipleship through Amazon.com. I looked up some of the titles this week. The Cost of Discipleship, Adventures in Discipleship, Real Life Discipleship, Deep Discipleship, Christian Discipleship, Discipleship on the Edge, I could go on, Chosen Discipleship, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, Discipleship Explored, Designed for Discipleship, Discipleship Essentials, The Complete Book of Discipleship. Friends, there seems to be a never-ending plethora, abundance of resources on the topic of discipleship. And this morning, we're going to look at what the Apostle Peter highlights as, as being the keys, the essentials of discipleship. In fact, if, if I was going to write a book on discipleship myself, I might even base it on Peter's passage here in 1 Peter chapter 4. And if I was to do that, I might call this book Essential Discipleship. Because that's exactly what Peter is going to point out to us this morning. What is Essential Discipleship? We, we can sum up essential discipleship in three words. Three words that we're going to find brought out, brought to light in Peter's passage this morning. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write these three words down, and we're going to focus on these as part of the essentials of Christian discipleship. These three words are these. Leave, look, 
and live. And we're going to talk about each of those words here in a moment. But what is essential discipleship? Leave, look, and live. Let's take a look at our passage this morning, and then we're going to come back and explore what each of those three ideas means in light of Peter's teaching. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-11. through 11. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screens behind me. Peter begins this passage. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is Peter's instruction on essential discipleship. What it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want to look at each of those three concepts that we mentioned a moment ago. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Essential discipleship. Number one, essential discipleship, according to the Apostle Peter, implies that we leave, there's that first word, leave. Leave what? Leave the past behind. Peter says leave the past behind. Our, our, our former sinful way of life in this world. Leave it behind. In the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know this is one of the greatest promises in the whole Bible. That, that when you come to faith in Christ, the, the old has passed away, your former sinful life, your, who you are with, with your guilt and your shame and, 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 and your longing for something to, to believe in and belong in, and you know all of that is behind, Paul says. And behold, the new has come. You're born to new life. You're born again. And, and, and this promise is, is what Peter is explaining as well in our passage this morning. Leave the past behind. Walk in the newness of life that Christ has called us to. Now, as we begin looking at this passage, I want us to remember the context in which this passage is found. 
chapter 4, if you recall, remember we want to read the Bible in context, and so chapter 4 falls in the context of the broader letter of 1 Peter. And if you recall from where we've been in recent weeks, Peter has been calling us to walk in Jesus' footsteps. He's been calling us to look to Jesus as our model, let him be our guide, use him as your example, and follow his lead. Let him be our model for living in this world. And, and so as our model, as the one Peter calls us to look to, Peter tells us that one of the ways that we follow Jesus is by arming ourselves with his same way of thinking. P- Peter calls us here to, to arm ourselves with Christ's way of thinking. In other words, we are to imitate and embrace the, the mind of Christ. We're to have the mind of Christ. Verse 1, Peter starts out, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now now the word arm here in the Greek is a military term. It it means to ready yourself or to prepare yourself for battle. The word in Greek is hoplizo. And it's the... it has the connotation of a soldier who's taking up his armor and his equipment and gearing up, getting ready to go into the fight. And Peter says we are to arm ourselves. We need to be ready. Why do we need to be ready? Well, the Bible tells us that we are in a spiritual battle. What we do daily in life, what we experience daily in life, is more than just this physical world. The trials, the challenges, the hardships that we face, there's more going on in the background that we don't see. We're in a spiritual battle according to the Word of God. And in fact, when you look through the New Testament, this is the consistent message throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, he says, put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. Because we don't wrestle, Paul says, against flesh and blood. This isn't the real battle. The real battle that we face as believers in this world is against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, this fallen age against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. In other words, friends, there are evil forces at work seeking to to derail us from our walk with God and from our effectiveness as his disciples in carrying out the mission that he's given us. So, So we need to be ready. We're in a spiritual battle. Peter, later in our letter, in a couple weeks, we're going to see, he tells us, be sober-minded, be watchful, because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Jesus told us in John 10.10 that the thief, Satan, our adversary, he comes to steal and kill and destroy. Friends, this is the consistent message throughout the New Testament that we are in a spiritual battle. And we have spiritual enemies that are seeking to destroy us. And so Peter calls us here to arm ourselves. We need to be ready for battle. We need to take up the armor of God and and be prepared. One One of my favorite things here as a pastor at Lakes Free over the years has been going up on our men's advance every fall with our guys. And one of the things that we do at the men's advance every year is is we we play paintball. 
And it's always hilarious to me to see because uh, every year when we go up there to play paintball, there's always these guys who come and they're just totally decked out in their military fatigues, their camouflage. I mean, we got guys that wear ghillie suits, you know. I mean, they lay down on the ground and they just completely blend in. You can't even see them. And they're ready for battle. I mean, they come and they're like, man, I am going to shoot some guys today. And, and, and I'm here you know, this is serious business. And, and what's always hilarious is every year, inevitably, we always have a guy or two that's never played paintball, and they show up, and they're wearing, you know, a bright orange sweatshirt, you know, or, you know, they're, they're Minnesota Gophers, you know, orange, you know, yellow and maroon, and, and they just stand out like a sore thumb out in the woods. Friends, who do you think is going to get blasted with paintballs in that situation, right? The guy wearing the ghillie suit or the guy wearing the, the uh, bright yellow Minnesota gopher sweatshirt, right? And see, this is the difference between somebody who's prepared for battle and a newbie who's going to get blasted, right? And Peter wants us to be armed. He doesn't want us to be a newbie unprepared for the battle that's to come. He wants us to arm ourselves. And God hasn't left us out without weapons for our battle. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, he goes on and he describes the weapons that we have. He says, stand firm, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, shoes for your feet, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying all times in the Spirit. So, so Paul here gives us this long list of spiritual armor and weapons that we are called to put on. Why? Again, because we're in a spiritual battle with forces of darkness seeking to steal and kill and destroy. And the Bible wants us to be armed for this battle. Now, Peter here in our passage this morning, he wants us to be armed for battle too. But instead of describing a long list of armor and weapons like Paul does, Peter simply, <clears throat> simply assumes all of these weapons under the idea of the mind of Christ. Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, with the mind of Christ. And, and friends, I, I want you to think about this. Jesus, in his life and ministry fully and perfectly exercised the use of all of these spiritual weapons, didn't he? Right? Like when you think of like, who did this perfectly? Who, who, who perfectly took up the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? Who, who perfectly wore the breastplate of righteousness? Right? Who, who fastened on the belt of truth more than any other? It was Jesus, right? Jesus lived this out in perfection. And so this is why Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about look to Jesus as your model, take up the spiritual armor the same way he did, embrace the mind of Christ, look to him. He is our example, living life in a world where the spiritual warfare is raging. Peter doesn't want us to be naive about the reality of the battle, about the reality of suffering in this world as a Christian. And so he says, take up the mind of Christ. Embrace the same way of thinking. Live like Jesus. Jesus armed himself, prepared himself for the battle. Now Peter next moves on and he describes our calling to leave our past life of sin behind. He goes on in verses 1 and 2. 
He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, friends, when you look at this verse, it's important we recognize Peter isn't talking here about sinless perfectionism, a life that is completely free of temptation and sin. And he's not saying here that that those who suffer in this world will literally have no sin. Okay, that's not what this verse is, is saying. What he is saying here is that if you're a Christian, you can expect to suffer in this world. Why? Because as a Christian, the sinful priorities and values of this world no longer hold any appeal to you. Or at least they shouldn't if you've chosen to be a follower of Jesus. You, you, you've, you've left that stuff behind. And so because the world's priorities are no longer your priorities, and because the world's values are no longer your values, and because you don't do the same kinds of things that the world does, friends, the world's going to think you're strange. But here's the thing we need to remember. We are strange. We're a peculiar people as followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, we've already seen throughout Peter's letter, he describes us repeatedly with with these words like aliens, sojourners, exiles. He, He says this world is not your home, Christian. Right? This world is not your home. And because you're no longer of this fallen sinful world, you can expect rejection from the world. And friends, remember, this is exactly what Jesus himself told us to expect. You remember back this summer in our study in the Gospel of John, John chapter 15, Jesus told us, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Friends, we shouldn't be surprised when when we experience rejection from this world because of our choice to follow Christ and to, to live his values and his priorities. Two weeks ago, Monday night at our Worldview U event, I was talking about the reality of our culture today, our post-Christian culture, our, our culture's highest virtue today is what I call politically correct tolerance. It's the highest virtue in our culture today. And, and politically correct tolerance says this. It says that you have to uncritically accept all people in the areas of their beliefs, their practices, and their lifestyle. And if you don't uncritically accept somebody in all three of those areas, beliefs, practice, lifestyle, you are given the label of intolerant, right? And friends, in our post-Christian culture day, is there any worse label you can be called than to be called intolerant, narrow-minded, bigoted, right? But you see, here's the reality. As followers of Jesus who, who stand on the truth of God's word, who believe that there's a creator God who has spoken and revealed truth to us, and we live and choose to follow his will and plan for our lives, and we live by his word and guidance, there are going to be things in this world that we simply have to say no to, that we can't go along with, that we can't endorse, and we can't accept, and we can't embrace as true. 
And so, for example, in our culture today, when we as Christians say, no, the, the homosexual lifestyle isn't God's will and plan for human sexuality. When, when we say things like gay marriage is outside of the norm of God's creation mandate for marriage, when, when we say things like transgenderism isn't God's will for, for humanity, right? That these are, these are perversions of what God created to be the norm for humanity in this world. When we make statements like that, which are based on God's truth, we can expect to be rejected by this world. And so this is why Peter says what he does in our passage. He says, look at, don't be surprised when you suffer for Christ. You're no longer of this world. But, but next he reminds us, even if you do suffer, it's worth it. Because the priorities of this fallen world have nothing of value to offer us. He, he goes on in verse 3, he says, For the time, <coughs> excuse me, he says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Here Peter points us to the bankruptcy of our former way of life. The, the bankruptcy of, of worldly living and, and worldly priorities and worldly values. And he says, look at friends, leave it behind. The, the past suffices. You, you've had enough. You've had enough of what this world has to offer. Leave it behind. The, the word suffices here that Peter uses, it, it implies that, that our past way of life is more than enough. I, I was thinking about that concept this week. I was reminded of when I was a youth pastor, and I, I, I led an annual trip down to, uh, to Florida for spring break every year. And, and one of the things that we did at, at this trip is we would go out to eat at night, and one night we took our kids, we loaded up the coach bus, and we went down to the Golden Corral there in Panama City Beach, Florida. Now, imagine walking into the Golden Corral with 50 teenagers, right? I mean, you know, they, they were sweating bullets when they saw us walk in. And Well, we started eating, and I discovered that some of my high school guys decided that they were going to have an eating competition. All right? Now, they didn't eat just one plate at the buffet, not just two plates. Some of these guys ate over a dozen full plates of food. I mean, I'm not kidding you. There were two or three guys who were sick the rest of the trip all week long. And, and here's the thing. Like, one plate, one plate was probably good, right? Two was definitely sufficient, but you didn't need 10 or 12. That's what Peter's getting at here when he says the past suffices. Look at what, whatever you've experienced in the past in this world, it's more than enough, that's what Peter's talking about. He says, leave it behind. Now, now, some of you here this morning, you really understand what Peter's saying. You get it because you've lived that life. You've, you've experienced life in this world, and, and there's no way in, 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 on earth that you would ever go back to it, right? Like the past suffices. I've had enough of that. I, I remember a season in my life when I wasn't walking with the Lord as a young man, and I thought, you know, I'm going to go try out some worldly stuff, and I got involved in, you know, partying, and I went down to the clubs in Minneapolis, and I, I literally, I can remember a time vividly, I was with a group of friends, I was in a club downtown Minneapolis, smoke-filled room, the music was blasting, I had a headache, People are walking around, stumbling around drunk. There's, there's a bunch of women over, you know, milling around looking for their Prince Charming. 
bunch of guys making a fool's themselves on the dance floor. And I remember thinking to myself, this is, this is what life is all about? I remember sitting in a booth looking out at the dance floor thinking, like, this is it? This is, this is what the world has to offer? This is so sad. Like, I can remember vividly, like, God was like, Jason, what in the world are you doing here? Bunch of lonely, pathetic people looking for love in all the wrong places. And, and, and I would never go back to that. I would never go back to that. Knowing what I know now about where true life is found. Now, there might be others of you here this morning who are thinking, well, Jason, I, I've hardly indulged in worldly living at all. I mean, I haven't experienced any of that stuff. And I, I find that young people especially often think this way. High school, college kids, right? They think, man, well, you know, I, I haven't even tried anything in this world. I mean, maybe I'm missing out on something. Friends, thinking you're missing out on something in the ways of this world is like thinking you're missing out on balut. You know what balut is? If you go to the Philippines, they have a supposed delicacy called balut. Looks like a hard-boiled egg, but what balut is, is it's a fertilized, partially developed duck embryo. And so you crack open this egg, and inside this egg, it looks like half hard-boiled egg, half slimy, undeveloped duck embryo. Beak, eyes, feathers, everything. And they slurp this thing up, and it's supposedly a great delicacy. All right? Now, friends, I don't think there's anybody here this morning thinking, oh, man, maybe I'm missing out on something. I mean, I've never tried balut. Nobody here thinks that way, right? And that's exactly what Peter's getting at when he says, leave the world behind. Like, look, at, don't worry about missing out on anything. You're not. There's nothing there that you want. There's nothing there to desire. It's disgusting. Peter says, leave it behind. You see, to, to turn from the sinful passions of this world and, and to live for the will of God, it's not to miss out on anything, but it's to experience life and life abundant the way God intended us to experience it. And so, friends, I just want to encourage you, don't waste your life pursuing worthless things. Peter says, leave the past behind. Live for the will of God. You'll never regret it. Now, the second word we come to in our essential discipleship this morning, Peter says, look. Number two, look. Look where? Look to God's vindication. Look to God's vindication. Let's read verse 4. Peter says in verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. Now again, Peter highlights the reality that we can expect to suffer in this world as a result of choosing to follow Christ and seeking to live for the will of God. And specifically, Peter says that unbelievers will malign us. They'll speak bad of us. Friends, have you ever been maligned as a result of choosing to follow Jesus? Have you ever experienced that? I remember my first job, and it was really the, primarily the only secular job I ever had. When I was in high school, 15 years old, I started working at Driscoll's New Market grocery store in Eden Prairie. I worked there for 12 years, all the way through high school, college, seminary. And I remember, I, I loved it, great job, had a lot of friends there, but there were a group of guys there at Driscoll's whose whole life revolved around sleeping with girls, partying, getting drunk, getting high. 
And I can remember every Monday I'd show up at work. The conversation always was the same. Talking about who they slept with, what party they went to. And then it turned to, well, Jason, what did you do this weekend? Oh, yeah, you were probably serving your youth group again, weren't you? What a loser. How stupid, how lame. I mean, I heard every name in the book thrown at me. I was maligned because I chose not to participate in the things that my friends who were living in the world were participating in. And and I was regularly maligned and ridiculed. And, And friends, again, Peter reminds us this is normal Christian life in this world. Okay, don't be surprised when the world doesn't understand you or, or surprised by your different values or priorities. Okay, when the world does malign you, remember this. Okay, they do this because your life is a testimony to righteousness. They malign you because you're a light piercing their depravity. And you're an example of faithfulness which is an indictment against their rebellion against God. That's why the world maligns you. you. You need to understand that. You need to know that. And and while the world might malign you and disparage you, remember, friends, we don't live for the approval of the world. We live for the approval of Jesus. Remember what Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Jesus said, look at friends, when they malign you, rejoice and be glad. Because God's keeping track. He's keeping account. And he says, when you live faithfully for me, even in the midst of the disparagement of this world, great is your reward in heaven. So as we live as followers of Jesus in this world, we need to keep our hope fixed on His promises. And we also need to remember that God is going to vindicate His people. Peter tells us here in our passage, a day of judgment is coming when those who malign us will stand before God and they'll have to give an account for their actions. Look what Peter says in verse 5. He says, but they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Friends, it might seem as if life in this world is often unfair and wickedness regularly goes unpunished. But take heart because God is keeping score. And one day the whole world is going to stand before Him and they're all going to have to answer for their sins. And this is why Peter says what he does here in verse 6. He says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter reminds us here that the message of the gospel is our ultimate hope. It's our ultimate vindication as God's people. He says, look, at even, even our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, who have passed away, this, this is why we preach the gospel to them too. That even though they've died, they've been judged in the flesh like like everyone will be. Because of the gospel and our ultimate hope in Jesus, they now live in in the Spirit the way God does. See, friends, the gospel is our source of hope. The gospel is our ultimate vindication. No matter what the world throws at us, no matter how much the world disparages us, we look to God 
as the one who's keeping score, who's going to judge everyone righteously, who promises us eternal rewards in heaven. And we look to the promise of our salvation. That's the hope that we have in the gospel. And, and so, friends, I, I just want to remind you this morning the importance of trusting in Jesus, especially knowing that a day of judgment is coming. Have you put your trust in him? Have you looked to him as your ultimate source of hope? Hebrews tells us that it's destined for all of us to die once and then face judgment. We're all going to stand before God. And Jesus is going to ask you, what did you do with my offer of salvation? With my gift of love and amazing grace? And on the day of judgment, nothing else is going to matter except whether or not you've received Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Don't miss out on that opportunity, friends. So Peter says we leave the past behind. We look to God's vindication. Thirdly, Peter says live. Live how? Live in light of eternity. Peter begins our final section this morning with these sobering words in verse 7. He says the end of all things is at hand. Friends, do you ever stop to consider that? That this present world is going to come to an end? That, that Jesus is coming again? And maybe very soon? I mean, this is the consistent message of the New Testament, right? Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Matthew 24, 44, Jesus says the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I mean, on and on, the New Testament tells us to be ready because Jesus could come any minute, any second. Jesus says, Revelation 22, behold, I am coming soon. Peter reminds us this morning, the end of all things is at hand. And one day soon, God will fulfill all of his promises to us. As Peter reminded us back in chapter 1, when Jesus returns, our living hope will be realized. The outcome of our faith will be fully known. Our eternal inheritance will be awarded. And that day is near, friends. It's certainly nearer today than it was 2,000 years ago when Peter wrote these words. And you look at what's happening in our world today, and you read Matthew chapter 24, Jesus' description of the signs of the end times. You read Matthew 24, it's like reading today's news feed. Jesus is coming soon. And the question is, how will we live in light of that day? How will we use the time God gives us in light of eternity? And this is why Peter concludes our passage this morning pointing us to four primary callings as God's people in this world. He says this is what it looks like to live in light of eternity. He says, number one, be self-controlled and sober-minded. In other words, don't be swayed by the world's passions. Don't be numbed by its intoxicants. Pursue righteousness. He says, number two, keep loving one another earnestly. That's that agape love we've talked so much about, right? Selfless, sacrificial submitting love, love one another the way Jesus loved, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, right? So much of our world today is about don't impose on me, don't impose on my time, don't impose on my, you know. Jesus says just the opposite. The Holy Spirit told Peter, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. 
This isn't an if you've received a gift. It's as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. If you're a follower of Jesus, every single one of you has been given at least one, maybe more, spiritual gifts to be used in service of the church, in service of God's mission. Now, some of you might not know what your spiritual gifts are, and that's fine. If if you need help with that, let us know. Okay, call the office this week. Pastor Stephen, Pastor Barry, myself, we have tools that can help you to understand what your spiritual gifts are. But God's given you a spiritual gift to be used in service of the kingdom. Now, friends, when you look at this list of what it means for us as Jesus' followers to live in light of eternity, keep this in mind. These are not suggestions. These are commands. This is essential discipleship. Right? Love one another earnestly. Show hospitality without grumbling. Whatever gift God's given you, use it to serve one another. This is the essence of what it means to live our lives in light of eternity. And remember, what's the goal in all this? Verse 11 says it's to glorify God. And as the second half of 1 Peter started out, back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it's that the Gentiles, the pagans, might see our good deeds and give praise to our Father in heaven. It's to bring non-believers to Christ. That's why we do these things. Again, essential discipleship. I want to close this morning telling you about a friend of mine named Michael Winokur. He's a pastor of a church plant in Denver, Colorado called Cross Culture Church. I was with Michael last week down in Dallas, Texas at this missions conference. Michael planted his church three years ago outside of Denver, Colorado, Cross Culture Church, seeking to reach a a multicultural uh, group of people in that community. Three years ago, started the church, all of a sudden, boom, the pandemic hit. They weren't allowed to meet in person for the last two years. Today, this morning, right now, is their first in-person gathering for worship as a church. First time they've ever met in person. They just moved into a new facility in a strip mall. They're meeting right now for the very first time. Do you know that that church over the last two years during the pandemic has grown to over 350 people with no facility, with no in-person gatherings? How on earth does that happen? How does that happen? It happens, friends, when men and women who are followers of Jesus look to him and look to his calling of what it means to be a disciple and then seek to live that out faithfully. If you go to Michael's church's website, their mission statement is this. I love it. We want to be great neighbors who display and declare the good news of Jesus Christ. How does a church grow to over 300 people without having a physical gathering? It's because you've got a bunch of people who embrace the calling of essential discipleship. To love earnestly. To show hospitality without grumbling. To serve using the gifts they've been given. And now this morning, they're worshiping together in person with 300 plus people committed to essential discipleship. Friends, I love that. That's what it's all about. And I, and I want to encourage us. We've seen this reality here at Lakes Free as well. Right? Like, look at this church. A church doesn't get to this point without a bunch of faithful men and women who are committed to living in light of eternity. 
But here's what we need to remember, friends. The end of all things is at hand. And our mission in this world isn't over yet. We live in a world that still desperately needs Jesus. We live in a community that still desperately needs Jesus. And this is why we exist as a church. This is why Lakes Free was started 35 years ago. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning, are we still committed to the mission that God's given us? Are we committed to essential discipleship? Friends, I pray we are. Because if we ever lose sight of the calling that God gave us and why he put us here, this church is dead. We're going to be like one of the dozens of churches all around us that people drive by and say, man, I wonder what used to happen in that place. Someday somebody's going to turn us into a coffee shop or a daycare center or something. That's what happens to churches that lose sight of their vision, the calling that God's given us. Friends, may it never happen here. Love one another earnestly. Show hospitality. Serve. That's what God's called us to, friends. This is essential discipleship. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this important and timely word from the Apostle Peter. And we just pray that you would inspire us with this vision of what it means to live faithfully as your people in this world with whatever time we have left. God, may we live for the sake of eternity. May your priorities be our priorities. May we leave the the sinful past of this world behind and may we live with the goal of bringing glory to your name by sharing the good news with everyone, with the lost, with the people who so desperately need you. Loving one another, serving one another so that the world might look at us and see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. God, please help us to embrace these essential callings that you've given us as your people. And Lord, may Lakes Free Church be a church that continues to make an impact in this world for decades to come because it's a church filled with faithful men and women who have embraced the call of essential discipleship. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. It comes from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Have a great week, and God bless you. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage. And we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.